you're a guest, you've come in kind of a midway point of a series that we're calling Make Great Decisions. You know, we understand how important it is to make great decisions because as we've learned, I have the freedom to make my own choices, but I don't have the freedom to choose my own consequences always. It's important how I decide because it can really complicate my life. And as we know, if we make enough bad decisions, we can so complicate our lives that sometimes it seems like we can never crawl out of that hole. Some of you have had that experience. All of us have felt the sting of making a really bad decision in our life. Well, you know, God is for us in our decision making. He really is. And he understands how important decisions are. And so the Bible, as the most timeless, amazing resource that has ever been given to mankind, the absolute inspiration of God, his revelation to us, it gives us guidelines on how we can make better decisions, how we can make decisions that won't compromise our our life and our family, our relationships, our security, but how we can enter into a process of decision-making that will more often than not yield a positive outcome. That's what we're trying to do. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, week one, we, we discovered that the place that to start for every believer in any important decision-making process is God. First thing we decide is, what has God already revealed about what I'm trying to decide? What's the Holy Spirit saying right now about this? Am I, am I conforming to godly counsel? Am I just kind of trying to do this myself, or am I being smart and bringing a multitude of counselors in this so I can make a good decision? Am I conforming to God's provision or am I trying to kick down doors and things that God's putting in my path to help me not to make a bad decision? Am I ignoring those things? Am I kicking them down and plowing through them anyhow? Place to start is God. Then last week, we start looking at some don'ts of great decision making. There are some things right off the bat that we need to understand that we want to avoid because these are the things that will complicate our lives. We looked at uh, don't rush it. It's not about how fast we make a decision. It's about how prepared we are to make a good decision. We talked about don't ignore your gut, especially believers. Why? Because it's not just our gut. It's not just our intuition. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit talking to us, and we need to listen to the Holy Spirit. We talked about don't ignore godly advice, even though we might reach out and utilize that conformity test. We can ignore it. We cannot use it. Make sure that we don't let others decide for us because they don't always know what's best and God's not working necessarily in their life and their mind the same way he is in our life. Now today I want to look at a few more don'ts of great decision making. So get your note sheet, get ready to go because this is what God wants us to know so that we don't complicate our lives. He really is for you, understand that. God wants to help you to make great decisions so that you can have a positive outcome to those decisions. Another important don't of great decision-making is this. Don't get nearsighted. Don't get nearsighted. What does that mean? Great decision-makers are not blinded by the now of their circumstances or desires. You know, sometimes we just want something so bad, or sometimes we just kind of conforming to our circumstances rather, rather than manipulating the circumstances to come out with a good decision process. Great decision makers always stop and ask themselves this question, how is this likely to play out in the long run, in the long term? 
Not only to think about that, but, but to contemplate all the different ways that it could play out. If I decide this, how's that likely to play out? If I decide that, how's that likely to work out for me? So again, making a decision is not impulsive. We want to think it out. We want to understand and ask the question, how is this likely to play out in the long run? Now, a classical biblical illustration of violating this important principle can, seen, can be seen in the experience in the biblical story of David and Bathsheba. Now, David, if you're new to the Bible, was the second king of Israel, arguably the greatest king of Israel, but he made a critical mistake. He made a really bad decision that complicated the rest of his life. We see this story in the book of 2 Samuel. That's an Old Testament book. Samuel was a prophet of God in the Old Testament times. And in chapter 2, verse 11, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, right off the bat, David has made a bad choice. He's made a bad decision. Because it reveals to us in God's word at the time when kings go out to war. In other words, what it's saying is David should not have been in Jerusalem. David's responsibility was to be with his army out in the field. And for whatever reason, either David got lazy or he got overconfident, David said, Joab, you go ahead and take the army. That was like his chief of staff, chief of his army. He said, you take the army, you go to battle. I'm just going to stay back here in Jerusalem. So right off the bat, he violated his godly responsibility as the king to be out there with leading his army, out there with his soldiers. Now, this led to a complication in his life. As it goes on to say in 2 Samuel 11, verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. So David, not being where he's supposed to be, one night a little restless, gets up, he's walking around the parapet of his, of, of his, of his castle, of his palace, and he's looking over into the neighborhood. And what does he see? He looks over and he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath. Now, right off the bat, if he took the conformity test, he said, oh, let me see, what has God said about this? What should he have done? He should have run the other way, right? He should not have done, but he, but he didn't. He, he, he took a look, and he began to, to, to think about how beautiful this woman it was. And so it says, David sent someone to find out about her. He sent someone, hey, go check out who is this beautiful woman. Now, that's what indeed happens. He sends them out, and lo and behold, the report comes back and says, whoa, king, back the bus up, forget it. You know who that is? That's Bathsheba. She's the wife of one of your commanders in your army, Uriah the Hittite. She's married. Off limits. Forget it, David. Now, let's take the conformity test. Has God said anything about that kind of relationship? Yes, he has. Is he getting godly advice? They say, forget it, king. Don't go there. Off limits. So he's not listening. He's not doing what we've learned the Bible tells us to do when important decisions come. So what does he do? Instead, David sent some messengers to get her, to bring her to him. And that's exactly what happens. And David seduces her. He takes her to bed, has sex with her. He satisfies the desire. He gets blindsided. He wants to satisfy what he wants right now, what, what was attracting to his eye right now. He's not asking the question how is this likely to play out? He just got what he wanted. Now look, it says, and then she went back home. So from David's perspective, he had made his conquest. David satisfied his physical desire, the, the lust of his eye, the lust of his flesh. And, and you know, he just figured, okay, I'm done. I'm done with her. She go back home, I'll probably never see her again. 
See, he got nearsighted. But one too long later, 2 Samuel 11, 15, or 5 says, the woman conceived then and sent David a message. King, we got a problem. I'm pregnant. See, he got nearsighted, and he forgot that when a man and woman get together that way, there can be this outcome called a baby. But he wasn't concerned about that. See, he was the king. He could do whatever he wanted. He could have whoever he wanted to have. He got nearsighted. He didn't ask, how is this likely to play out in the long run? Now listen, we can talk ourselves into all kinds of bad decisions by looking right in front of our eyes at what we want right now or what our circumstances present right now. Oh, that's a great deal on that car. I, I, I've always wanted that car. I, I, I just, I'm going to go buy that car right now without considering how it might play out in the long run. Or that job, I want that job, or I don't like my job, so I'm just going to quit it. I'll find some job. I'm not going to worry about it. And we just quit our job, and all of a sudden we can't find another one. See, we, we act impulsively, and we get blindsided. We get nearsighted, not thinking about where all this can possibly go. We do it over and over again. And you might be right now in an important place in your life where you're tempted to do exactly that. You're tempted to act on what you want right now or what you think you can manipulate right now, and you're not really asking the question, how might this play out in the long run? What are the consequences of this in the long run? Closely related to that is another important don't of decision-making, and that is don't outwit yourself. Trying to be too clever can really complicate our lives. This is exactly what happens to David. Now, we see David, and he's just got word back from Bathsheba, and now she's pregnant. So now what's David going to do? Well, David's got another decision to make. What's he going to do now that this situation has presented itself? What's he going to do now that he's violated God's revealed will, he's violated moral standards, and now what's going to happen? How's he going to handle this? Well, David starts getting clever. And David says, I know exactly what to do. So David sends off a messenger to send Uriah back from the battle. Just under the guise to send Uriah back with a report. Tell me how things are going in the battle. So Uriah comes back. He gives his, his speech to the king. King's not really interested in it. He just wants Uriah back. And so he says, Uriah, great job. You're a great warrior. Thank you for being in my army. And he gives him a medal or he gives him some kind of award, the Bible says. And he says, all right, you've deserved this. You go ahead home now and you just rest and, and wash your feet and relax, get a good meal and, and, and you know, be with your wife. And, and so you know, David's thinking, okay, I'll bring him back. He'll go and, and he'll lie with his wife and then no one's going to know that it's my baby and not his baby. See, but what he doesn't count on, see, because he's outwitting himself, is that Uriah is an honorable man. And Uriah, the next day, David finds out Uriah didn't go home. He didn't go with Bathsheba that night. And he comes back and says, well, why didn't you take advantage? Why didn't you go? He says, how could I do that, king? He said, the covenant, the ark of God is in battle. Your soldiers in battle. My men are on the front lines fighting. How could I take comfort in the joys of my home, my wife, when they're out in battle? I won't do that. He's an honorable man. So he slept with the king's servants instead. Well, David's going, oh, man, now what am I going to do? 
I don't know, dude. So he said, that's great, Uriah. You're a great soldier. That's why I like you so much. Hey, come on over to dinner tonight. So he brings him back, and David gets him drunk. David says, okay, I'll get him drunk. And now in a drunken stupor, I'll just send him back home, and he'll be with his wife, and I'm out of trouble. And so he gets him drunk, but Uriah, even in a drunken state, won't go to be with his wife. So now, now see how these dominoes start falling in the wrong direction because of bad decisions? So now what's David going to do? Well, David comes up with the worst of all his plans. Now he writes a letter to Joab, the commander of his army. And in the letter, it says, take Uriah and put him in the heat of the battle where he's sure to be killed. Seals that, top secret, for Joab's eyes only. And he gives it to Uriah to deliver back. So Uriah is carrying back his own death sentence. Gives it to Joab. And Joab obeys the king and he puts him in the heat of the battle. He puts him in in the siege of this city to the place of the city wall that is defended by the best warriors the enemy has. And Uriah gets killed. But the problem is not only does Uriah get killed, but several of the soldiers get killed with him. In fact, when, when Joab sends a message back to, to David, he tells the messenger this. Now, the, the, the king might get angry when you give him this message. And he would say, why did they get so close to the wall? Don't they know there's archers on the wall that could shoot arrows? And why did they get so close to the wall where people could throw over stones and kill people? What was wrong with them? What was... And he said, now, so if, if the king gets mad, you tell him this. You say, and also your servant Uriah is dead. So he wanted to get the message. The reason that all that happened was because he followed the king's orders and had Uriah killed. Word come back, Uriah's dead. 2 Samuel eleven twenty six. when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, now look what it says, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Now, now David now, he's he still got stinking thinking going. So now Uriah's dead. She's now a widow, and now he's going to bring her into his household. Don't you know that, that what David's thinking is, he says, man, I, I can be the hero in this thing. This poor woman whose husband was killed in battle. Now, I've had compassion on her, and I've invited her into my house, and I've taken her as my wife so that she'll be cared for for the rest of her life, and she'll be in the king's palace. It's still part of the cover-up. But what he forgot, and what we often forget, is that there's somebody else. No matter whether we get away with it or not, there's somebody who knows. And it says... But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. No one really knows. Joab didn't know why he sent Uriah into the front of the battle. No one knows what's going on. Even now, David is confident he's got away with it. But God reveals to the prophet of God, Nathan, what David had done. And he sends this prophet, Nathan, to David. And, and he uses an analogy. He goes to the king. He says, king, you've got a problem here in your kingdom. David says, what's that? He, says, he said, would you believe that there's this rich guy who's got all kinds of sheep? I mean, he's got hundreds of them. And that guy took from one of the poor guys in the kingdom the only sheep that guy had, and he stole it and took it for his own. And David got just indignant. And he said, who's that man? You tell me who that man, that man needs to die. That's what that man needs to do. And Nathan said, you're the man. 
You're that man, king. Now then Nathan pronounces a judgment from God on the life of David. It says in 2 Samuel 12, verse 9, God speaking now through Samuel, or through Nathan, says, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. He says, now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And that's exactly what happened for the rest of David's kingdom. The sword never departed from his house. The very next chapter talks about two of David's sons. And one of the sons is lusting after, after his, his niece, the, the daughter of one of David's other son, and, and ultimately seduces her and rapes her, and then despises her and throws her out in her shame. And so now Absalom kills him later on because of that. And then Absalom turns on his dad and, and stages a coup against David's kingdom. And it's a mess for the rest of his life. See? He got near He tried to outwit the circumstances. And we do that all the time. We try to get too clever. And in trying to get clever and trying to manipulate things and trying to manipulate the bad decisions we made in the first place, we further complicate everything. Listen, if you've got to clever your way through decision to make that decision work, you're already on thin ice. So how do I know? Well, if you've got a bunch of ifs linked to this equation of your decision-making process, well, if this happens, then this will happen. And if that happens, and if that, if that happens, then this will be okay. And if that, and then if. And you've got all these if-thens strung into your decision-making process, you're in trouble. Or if you are having to manipulate too many circumstances and too many people, you're in trouble. You're already on thin ice. You are in danger of outwitting yourself and causing all kinds of horrible consequences to come ultimately. Why? Because you're nearsighted. You're not thinking of what might happen. And number two, you're outwitting yourself. You're trying to get too clever. Seven, don't sabotage yourself. Now, you'll see how these lead, one from another leads into the other. They're linked. It's kind of a natural sequence. Don't sabotage yourself. We sabotage ourselves when we ignore reality, when we ignore what's really happening in this whole thing. I shared with you a book on week one by Dr. Charles Foster. It says, what should I do now? I love what he says about this. He says, not taking reality in account has a far bigger cost than merely making bad decisions. Look what he says. I love this. When you ignore reality, you get your brains beat in. That's what he says. He says, it's not just a bad decision. You're going to get your brains beat in when you ignore reality. He says, when that happens, more than a couple times, you can get really discouraged. See, when you start getting into the process of making bad decisions, all this stuff starts caving on you, you're going to lose your self-esteem, you're going to lose your self-confidence, and you're going to believe that you are no longer capable of making a good decision. And all of this is going to avalanche on you, and it's going to bury you in a sea of discouragement, of depression that you're going to have to dig yourself out of. Classic biblical illustration of violating this principle is in the story of Samson. You know the story of Samson? Judges chapters 13 through 16. At this time in Israel's history, they're no longer being led by a patriarch, people like Abraham and Isaac and, and even Moses. Now they're being led by a series of judges. 
God would choose a man, God choose a woman. He put the Holy Spirit on them and they led the nation. Well, in this case, he's raising up a special judge to take care of the Philistine problem, a neighboring people that were constantly marauding Israel and causing all kinds of death and chaos. And so he's going to raise up a special judge from birth to take care of the Philistine problem. And he appears to the wife of a man named Manoah in, in the book of Judges, and he tells him that this son's coming. He gives him instruction. He says, listen, this son is to be a Nazarite. From the moment she conceives him, she's not to drink anything for a minute, not to have anything from, the, from the, the grapevine. She's supposed to set herself aside, very special diet. When the child's born, he should never have any alcohol of any sort. He should never cut his hair, can never go around any dead thing. He is called, he's separated unto a special purpose for God. And God, in turn, was going to bless him with, with unbelievable strength. He's the strongest man who ever lived. He's really kind of a superhero of his day, the Hulk. Strong man, Samson. But Samson doesn't handle all this well. And in chapter 13, he goes to his parents. And supposed to be the champion of Israel over the Philistine, he, says, he sees a Philistine woman. He says, I want that woman for my wife. Now, he's violating all these principles. He's nearsighted. God's already said, don't marry into the pagan people. His parents come right back and they say that. They say, hey, whoa, where, where are you going, son? Come on, you know better than that. They say, of all the Hebrews, of all the Jewish girls that are out there, can't you find one for your wife? I mean, there's lots of beautiful Jewish girls out there. Come on, Samson, we'll get you a good one. No, I want that one. That's the one I want. And so ultimately, they relent. Story to us, parents don't relent. They relent it and let them do it. And so he's in this whole engagement process now. When he gets ready for the bachelor party, he's assigned 30 groomsmen. That was the, the culture. And so they're having a bachelor's party. It lasts a whole week long. And so in his pride, he gets his 30 guys together, and he, he gives them a contest. And he says this to them in, in Judges 14, verse 12. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson says to them. If you can give me the answer within the seven days of the feast... I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. He says, here's the deal. If you can answer this riddle, I'm going to give you 30 linen garments, 30 sets of clothes. Remember, clothes were very expensive at that time. People didn't have but one or two sets. So now he's promised them the moon. He says, now, if you can't answer the riddle, you, you have to give me the same. So the guy says, bring it on. What's your riddle? And he says this. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. Now, to understand the riddle, you have to back up. While he's courting this Philistine woman, He's one day traveling through the countryside, and he gets attacked by a lion. Well, he, with his bare hands, because he's Samson, he's got this unbelievable strength, he just tears the lion apart, and he throws the carcass off in the weeds off the side of the road. Well, on a subsequent journey, later on, weeks later probably, he, he goes by and he goes to look at the carcass, you know, to, to revisit his victory over this, this lion, and, and he finds out that a bunch of bees have made a home there, and they've produced a lot of honey. So he reaches into the carcass, which is a violation of his Nazarite vow, by the way, and he takes out a bunch of honey, and he starts eating the honey as he's going. And he takes some home to his parents, and they, they eat this honey. So this is what this riddle is about. Well, they can't figure it out, and time's clicking. And so they go to his wife now. Remember, they're, they're already married under the culture thing, even though ceremony hasn't taken place yet. 
And they say, hey, you gotta, you got to go to your husband and get, find out what this is. You know? and, and so she goes and does the, the, the woman thing. You know? Oh, Samson, if you love me, then you would tell me, you know, because you're making a fool of me and all the people. I'm your wife. If anybody should know, I should know. So he tells her, and she tells them. So within the seven-day period, they finally come and they say to this, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? See, they solve the riddle. The riddle. She betrays him. Well, he says this in response. He says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved the riddle. In other words, if, you hadn't, if she hadn't betrayed me, you'd have never got it. And so he ends up being angry with her and casts her out as his wife and gives her to one of the groomsmen, and, and he's done with her. But, but she had betrayed him. See? Now, the story gets more complicated. Judges 16.4. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman of the Valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. Another Philistine woman. Again, he didn't learn from his mistake. Any of us do that before, huh? And now he wants another Philistine woman. So he sees another beautiful one. Her name is Delilah. Now, how many remember the story? Yeah, most of you do. And Delilah now starts playing the thing. The Philistines come to her and he says, hey, you've got to find out the secret of his strength. See, they've tried to subdue him. They've tried to conquer him. They can't conquer him because he's got superhuman strength. And so they, they said, you've got to find out what it is. So Delilah goes, and she does the, the, the woman thing. Oh, Samson, you're so strong. Oh, Samson, you're so handsome. Oh, Samson, I love you so much. How come you're so strong? Well, Samson tells her a story. He said, well, he said, if they, if they would tie me up in, in newly spun rope, that's still green. I, I wouldn't have the strength to break it. Well, lo and behold, he, he wakes up from his sleep and she's yelling, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he's all tied up in this newly thing, you know. But he told him a lie. So he breaks it and he breaks it and he beats the snot out of the Philistines and, 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 and he goes on. So she comes back and says, oh, you lied to me. You don't really love me. If you really love me. So three times this happens. See, he falls victim to sabotaging himself. And we often fall victim to sabotaging ourselves when we ignore things like ignoring our intuition. I mean, right off after the first one, I mean, didn't he learn the lesson that with these Philistine women, blood is thicker than water? Huh? She betrayed him. He's got another Philistine. I mean, we, we, we sabotage ourselves by turning a blind eye to the obvious. I mean, I, I think about it three times. He gives her this, this convoluted story of where his strength is. Three times he wakes up with these Philistines descending on him in the exact condition that he told her would take away his strength. Duh. <laughs> Duh. And yet one more time, she comes in and she's, oh, Samson, you don't really love me. You've made a fool of me, Samson. And ultimately, he falls victim to sabotage himself by believing his own press. And we do the same thing. Oh, Samson, you're so strong. No one could ever beat you. Oh, Samson, you're so powerful. Oh, Samson, you're this. Oh, Samson, you're that. You're so wonderful. Oh, Samson, there's nobody like you. You don't ever have to worry about that. And so finally, he reveals the truth. And you know how the story goes. He goes to sleep. She cuts the hair. 
Now, Samson wakes up again. Judges 16, 20. Then she cried, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. See, he believed his own press. Nothing can stop me. I'm superhuman. I got superhuman strength. You don't have to worry about it. And, but he didn't know that because he had violated what the Lord had told him. The Lord had taken the spirit from him. And he no longer had his strength. See, we sabotage ourselves when we ignore our intuition, when we turn a blind eye to the obvious of what's going on around us, when we believe our own press that we're so smart, we're so clever, we're so talented, we're so smart, we're so brilliant, we're so whatever, and we allow those things to cloud our decision-making. Well, ultimately, it will leave us in this place. Don't corner yourself in. Now, again, these things, they're naturally going to happen as we continue to ignore them. Look what happens to Samson. It says in verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 20, when the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding in the prison. They took him finally because he, he, he had made horrendous decisions over and over again. Ultimately, they removed his ability to make decisions that protected his own freedom, his own welfare, and the welfare of the nation that he had been blessed by God to protect. And now they gouge his eyes out so he can never see again. And now they, they, they put bronze chains. That was the strongest metal known to man at the time. And they make him all day long push a grinding mill in the prison. Just walk in a circle all day long. Grinding, grinding, grinding while they're ridiculing, mocking his folly. See? Now ultimately God, as he cries out to God, God did for Samson what God has done for me and God has done for you so many times and in our folly and in the horrible of our decision-making process. He gives him back his strength and he's able to slay more Philistines in his death than he ever did during his life. But look at the consequences that he had to pay. To avoid cornering yourself in, let me give you three important things to never forget. The first one is it's hard to beat the odds and win. It's hard to beat the odds and win. You gotta know what the odds are. And why do you think you can beat those odds? Samson thought he could beat the odds of marrying a pagan woman and nothing going to happen to him, cost him his eyes as a life. You know, you know we, we say, well, you know, I, I know God says that we shouldn't be unequally, un, un, equally yoked together with unbelievers. We shouldn't get into relationships, marriages, dating relationships, business deals and all that with unbelievers. But, but uh, this is going to be okay. You know, I'm going to beat the odds on this one. You know, I, 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 you know, some young lady might think, you know, I'm going to go to Hollywood and become famous and, because, you know, I, I know hundreds and hundreds of, of young women go to Hollywood every day and they want to become a famous actress and that, and, but, and, and no one makes it and they end up in all kinds of horrible, but, but I'm going to beat the odds. I, I, I'm the special one. I, I'm the one who's going to make it. Get out there and they corner themselves in and get involved in a lifestyle they can't get out of their trap. They start compromising their values and end up in all kinds of horrible situations. It probably won't be different this time. See, it probably won't be different this time. Samson got married again to another Philistine thing. Oh, it'll, be it won't, it won't, it'll be different this time. It won't be like that last time. I'll, I'll have somebody that really loves me. I can trust this one. 
I've had guys come to me and say, yeah, pastor, I know she's been married five times before, but, but she's never been married to me. It's going to be different this time. Because it's me. See, it's not going to be different. Yeah, I know that I've lost money, you know, five times in day trading on the, you know, on the stock market, but, you know, it's going to be different this time. I'm, I'm going to make it big this time. And, and see, we, we, we end up cornering ourselves in. We end up so cornering ourselves in by these consequences of, of a series of horrible decisions and violating good decision-making policies that there's no way out of it. Proverbs 26, 11 says, as a dog returns to it vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. I love that proverb. It's so true, right? Hey, all of us have messed up. Anybody here never messed up in your whole life? I want to meet you. Yeah, all of us mess up, right? The thing is, do we repeat our folly? I, I love that. As a dog returns to his vomit. That's what we do when we, we turn to our folly. We're like a dog going back and licking up. Ew, that's nasty. You know, that's us. Pebbles in your shoe will hurt. Don't forget that. See, we corner ourselves in by compromising things that, that we rationalize away that are really important parts of the decision-making. You, know, you go to the car dealer, and you've got, a, you've got, a, you've got a, a budget amount of money that you're willing to pay on a car payment every week. And, and that's it. And you sit down, you go through the process, and, but for $75 more a month. I mean, yeah, you, you can have this one over here for what you want, but... For just $75 more a month, you can have this. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, $75, you know, that's not that much more. And we go ahead and we, we jump on it. We make that decision. But a few months into those payments, that $75 means I can't go out with my wife. That means my kids can't have that, 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 that book they need or that whatever, that $75, see? Or, yeah, I know, I'm taking this job, I got this job offer, and it's all the way down in Coral Gables, and I, I live in Weston, and man, that's a drive down to Palmetto every day through all that traffic, and wow, that, man, I've, I've never wanted to go through all that traffic, but you know what, I, you know, I'm tough enough to do that, that, that's not that big of a deal. Or you know what, I'll do, I'll get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, I'll beat all the traffic. Well, yeah, you get up at 5 o'clock in the morning for a few days, and after a while you're going, what is this? You know, so what ends up happening is we start in our relationships, in our finances, in our work, in everything. We start compromising these little things that ultimately are like pebbles in your shoe. You ever get a pebble in your shoe and you're walking around and it's just irritating you more and more and more the more you walk and you can't wait to get that thing out of your shoe? Well, we complicate our life doing the same thing, only we corner ourselves in and we can't take it out of the shoe because now we've made a decision that has long-term consequences and will long-term impact our life. Proverbs 14, 15 says, A simple man believes anything, but a prudent man gives thought to his steps. So there you have it. The don'ts of decision-making. Every one of them with a biblical example of when violating those principles, how traumatically it can compromise our lives. Maybe you're, you're, you're making an important decision right now. You've got some decisions to make or an important decision to make. This is gold for you. This is gold. Don't rush it. Don't rush it. Don't ignore your gut because your gut is a believer in Jesus Christ is the Holy Spirit. He's talking to you. He's warning you. 
Don't ignore godly advice. Don't, don't, don't use that conformity test just to ignore it and dispel it and say, oh, they don't know what they're doing. I know better than they do. Don't, don't let others decide for you, but, but especially don't get nearsighted. You've got to ask yourself the question, how is this likely to play out? What are the different ways these dominoes can fall? If I decide this, I'm setting some dominoes falling in some direction. What direction are they falling in? And am I willing to live with that? If I make this decision, I'm going to set dominoes falling in this direction. Am I willing to live with the consequences of where those dominoes might fall? If I make this decision, then I've got dominoes falling over here. How about that? Am I willing to live with the consequences of where those dominoes are going to fall? See, all that has to come into it. Because if you don't, you're not with yourself. You're going to find yourself trying to manipulate all kinds of things and circumstances and people. and It all is going to be ugly at the end. God wants to help you to make great decisions because God understands what I need to understand is that I have the freedom to make my own choices, but I don't have the freedom to choose my own consequences. And God wants to help me and God wants to help you not to massively compromise our lives. Let's bow our heads. Next week, I'm going to conclude the series with the do's of great decision-making. What do we need to do? But right now, I want you to just to kind of evaluate where you are in life, especially those of you who are in a situation where you're making some decisions right now. And maybe you're already identifying how some of these things are in play in your life, and you're going, whoa, wait a minute, I better stop, I better slow down here, I better back up, I better take another look at this. And right now, God's talking to you. Well, don't, don't ignore him. Listen to him. Now, while believers are contemplating all, all of that, I want to reach out <clears throat> just as we get ready to close. We're going to close in just a minute to maybe a man or a woman here who's never made the greatest decision that every human being has to make, and that is what they're going to do with Jesus Christ. And why is that the greatest decision? that every human being will ever make because that is the sole decision that will determine where we spend eternity, whether we spend it in heaven, whether we spend it in hell. Not my philosophy, not my opinion. That's what the Bible teaches very clearly. See, most people live under the hope that they're going to live a good enough life that God's going to evaluate their life and see their good and invite them into heaven. Never going to happen. That's, I love you. I'm not being condescending. I'm not being judgmental. I'm being biblical. That is never going to happen. That's not how it works. If we could live a good enough life to earn our way to heaven, Jesus never needed to come and die on the cross. Jesus came and died on the cross because we could never live a good enough life to work our way to heaven. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that anyone can boast. See, the only way to have the forgiveness of our sin, the only way to eternal life is putting our faith in what Jesus has already done. That's it. There's no other way. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Every head bowed, no one looking around. How about you? Do you know where you're going to spend eternity? If you die today, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? If not, maybe right now these words are resonating with you while no one's looking around. You know I'm talking to you right now. Would you have the courage just to raise your hands and say, Pastor Pete, you're talking to me. I don't know where I'm going to spend eternity, but I want to. Just raise your hand. I won't embarrass you in any way. Yes, yes. You can put your hand down. 
Yes, anyone else? For you who raised your hand, God is reaching out to you right now. Not me. So I'm not clever and I'm not eloquent. God is reaching out. He loves you and he's touching. He's reaching out to you right now and he wants to give you this gift of eternal forgiveness. Don't leave this campus in that condition. It's simple. Just reach out to him right now and, and receive that gift. You, you do it by just by trusting Christ. You, you say, God, something like this, God, I know I am a sinner. I know I've sinned against you. I haven't lived the perfect life. I know I need your forgiveness. I get it now, God. I'm never going to be a good enough person to earn heaven. That's why Jesus came. And Jesus, I maybe don't understand everything about you and the Bible, but, but I get this now, that because you died on the cross, God has given you alone the authority to forgive sin. And so, Jesus, I'm asking you to do that in my life right now. Jesus, forgive my sin. Jesus, pay my sin debt with your sacrifice. Jesus, adopt me into the family of God. Today, I believe on the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, for eternal life. I'm transferring all confidence off of my own goodness, off of anything else. Today, I believe Jesus. Today, I ask Jesus for you to be my Savior. See, the Bible says to anyone who, who makes that decision and does that, the Bible says in 1 John 5.13, these things I write to you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may have eternal life. Look up one more time. If you just made that decision or, or you, you really need to, I want you to do something, two things. Number one, on your Connect card, in your bulletin, on the back, there's a box that says, I trust that Christ is my Savior. This is my decision today. Check that box and make sure all the information about you is accurate and we want to reach out to you and celebrate and pray for you. But also, as you leave today, you can stop by our Welcome Center or a resource table and you can get one of these little books that will help reaffirm what you did this morning as you trusted Christ. It'll tell you what God wants you to know from the Bible about eternal life. And you can pick one up free. We'll give it to you on your way out. Just ask someone at, at the desk. I'm so glad you're here, and I'm, I, I got one more week, and I hope this is helpful, and I hope you'll put it into play because, really, God's for you, and he doesn't want you to complicate your life. He wants to help you to have a little smoother path. And no matter where you're coming from, know that there is a path, and God will take you to a higher place, to a place of fulfillment, a place of satisfaction, a place of purpose. Why? Because he loves you. Don't forget, as we leave today, we have that, uh, that final decision that we do, and that is what we're going to give the Lord in our tithes and our offerings. There's offering kiosk at all the exits. Please stop by one of them and, and give your gift to the Lord. Next week, we'll be back at the normal time. We'll finish the series, and the series will be available to everyone.